Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Schaus. Episode 12, Ivan the Great, Part 3. We've followed Ivan the Great for the past two episodes, from his start as the sole Grand Prince of Moscow at the age of 22 with the death of his father, Vasily the Blind, through his annexation of Novgorod and all its territories, through his marriage to the niece of the last Byzantine emperor, Zoe Paleologue, to his throwing off the yoke of the Mongols, and finally to the submission of the city of Tver, ending a family feud going back to 1304. Lithuania, under Casimir IV, was still a thorn in Ivan's side, as he wanted complete control of the lands his ancestors had, through the Rurik line, namely Kiev. His break came in 1492 with the death of Casimir. This precipitated the split of the Lithuania and Poland bond. John Albert, the eldest son of Casimir, became the Polish king, with Alexander, the younger son, becoming the Grand Duke of Lithuania. Now, much of Russia's annoyance with Lithuania came from its relationships with the Catholic Poles. Lithuania had, to that time, been pretty much a pagan land until comparatively recently with a number of orthodox nobility surviving the collapse of Kiev. At first, the aggressive converters from the Catholics focused on the pagan population, but there was growing pressure on the orthodox citizens to convert, which angered the Muscovites, especially the Metropolitan. Ivan jumped into the weakening of his adversaries and pressured Alexander to give him lands along the Lithuanian-Russian border, already led by princes under Ivan's protection. Add to that, Ivan's daughter Yelena was to wed Alexander. They signed a peace treaty, and all seemed to be smooth sailing. But within six years, in 1500, things once again became downright hostile. The border between the two countries had a series of hot spots, and then the fire came that ignited a war. Yelena complained to her father that Alexander was abusing her. This was more than the hot-tempered Ivan could take. He called on his friend Mengli Garay of the Crimean Horde to help him subdue his enemy with the Lithuanian Grand Duke Alexander calling on the Livonian knights to come to his aid. Back and forth the battles went, until in 1503 the Russians routed the Lithuanian army at the Battle of Vidrosha River and actually capturing their military commander. Alexander had no choice but to reinstate the peace treaty of 1494, but relations were not to improve for quite some time. Ivan wanted more. He wanted any land that was once controlled by Orthodox Christians, whether they were now governed by Catholics or Muslims. But that would have to wait. Ivan wanted to extend his reach to his fellow rulers of Europe and Asia, now that he was no longer considered a vassal of the Mongols. This reaching out was not at all favored by the Orthodox, who had a great disdain for the outside world. They were all heretical and a threat to their religion, especially the Latins. Now, how to balance the two sides, the church and Ivan's wish to be respected? Well, it came from the Greeks who had fled Constantinople, some of whom arrived when Zoe came to Moscow. They were Orthodox and were very well versed in diplomacy especially the Trucariot brothers. Yuri Trucariot had served already as an ambassador to the Holy Roman Emperor, as well as the King of Denmark. He would eventually rise to the position of Kaznachi, 
the official in charge of foreign relations. He was also an Italian who would later convert to orthodoxy when Gian Battista della Volpe became the Ivan's master of the mint. He's also been suggested as the man who came up with the idea of getting Sophia and Ivan together. Ivan's government employed a German and even a Jew, one Korya Kokos, who was used as an intermediary with the Crimean Horde. By 1500, with numerous emissaries traveling the world, Moscow had more than 20 translators employed. Alliances were formed. Milan, Hungary, Vienna, and Denmark became allies, with the latter being an important buffer against the growing power in the north, Sweden. There were problems, though, as the number of educated foreigners or even Russians with knowledge of languages and sophistication were very few. The Russians had to have rules set down on how to behave at diplomatic gatherings. Here's an interesting snippet of the instructions, thanks to Philip Longworth's book, Russia, the Once and Future Empire from Prehistory to Putin. Quote, You should drink moderately and not to the point of drunkenness. Whenever you happen to drink, you should watch yourself and drink carefully, lest your carelessness bring dishonor to our name. Any misbehavior on your part will dishonor both us and yourselves, so watch yourself in all things. Another line said, quote, Reprimand anyone who disobeys you and hit him. These excerpts came from the Muscovite diplomatic instructions set out in May of 1503. Now, of course, many of the diplomats who were sent out were really spies, with some actually sent out to scope out some potential brides and grooms for Ivan's sons and daughters. This network, first built in the late 1400s, firmly established in the 1500s, was to be instrumental in the building of the Russian Empire. The Russian military began to modernize under Ivan's rule. They were able to use horses in their cavalry like the Mongols wear light armor like the Ottoman Empire's Mamelukes, build German crossbows and firearms such as flintlock arquebuses, which were the predecessors to rifles. But all of this did was to strengthen Ivan's army and power, but at a cost, in taxes. It is said that any increase in taxes will cost an economy, but in Ivan's time it didn't. It actually stimulated a boom time. The taxpayers, who were the landowners, made the peasants and the serfs work harder, put more land under the plow, because they needed to have a surplus to sell, because the taxes had to be paid in cash. This made much more food available, which in turn helped increase the population dramatically. Ivan, with all his improved relations with the West, built a fort in 1492 called Ivangorod. It was a small town, there was a nexus for an important Russian term that was to guide many a future ruler, and it was Russia's search for a window on the West. We will be mentioning this in many podcasts in the future. The Poles, with the Knights of Livonia, battled Russia's forces on and off from 1490 until 1510. Terror tactics were used by both sides. Not that it was unique in and of itself at the time, but some, like employing 1,600 vicious dogs in one battle, or the burning alive of 4,000 inhabitants of the Russian city of Kobyla on the shores of Lake Piepis, showed the level of hostility between the enemies. In all, the brutality shown was legendary. Fighting the Poles was con 
was to continue on and off for a long time to come, with one incident actually occurring in the 1940s that I'll mention uh, later in my This Week in History section. In Moscow, Ivan engaged in huge, large-scale building projects throughout the city. He also created a code of law to be used throughout the land. He brought numerous new traditions and ceremonies to Moscow, with Sofia being the uh, lead on that, some of which of these made him seem distanced from the people, kind of styling himself as a real Caesar. This was to bring him a number of problems toward the end of his reign. There was also a schism developing between the Orthodox Church or within the Orthodox Church. Two groups rose up, sometimes violently against each other. The traditionalists, also known as the possessors, saw no problem with the church being holders of land and wealth. They also believed in a very strong relationship with the Tsar. This group was led by the abbot of Volokolmysk, also known as Joseph of Volok. The others, aptly known as the non-possessors, was led by a monk named Nil Sorsky. He and his followers had radically different ideas from their traditionalist brethren. They believed that the church, and especially monks, should have no worldly possessions, which includes land. Religion and the ruler of the land should also be separate, which was in direct oppo opposition to the ideas started by one Constantine I, some thousand years before. If this idea were to prevail, though, Ivan's authority would be severely undermined. Ivan was in a quandary, being caught between the two groups, both of whom had ideas that truly appealed to the Grand Prince. In Sorsky and the non-possessors, they had the ideas that would allow Ivan to confiscate vast land holdings of the church, which would allow him to lease more land and gain more loyal servants. On the other hand, the separation of church and state was too much of a threat to his rule. As Duffy and Ricci state in their book, Czars, quote, the state and the church were joined by too many common interests, and Ivan was a prisoner of that relationship. Ivan was in his fifties, and he began to consider who his heir would be. As would be expected, competing sides would arise, but not after Ivan was dead, as had been the traditional Russian way, but while he was still alive. On the one side was Sophia, with her and Ivan's eldest son Vasily, also known as Basil in many texts, but I'm going to stick with the Russified name, and the second being Dmitri, his grandson by his first wife, Maria of Tver, through their only son, Ivan. There were also boyar factions who split their loyalty between the two. Those backing Dmitri despised Sophia and the Byzantine influence she brought to the Russian court and all the changes that Ivan had instituted, which diminished these boyars' influence. Sophia, obviously in a mode of self-preservation, found a group of boyars who were pro-change. At first, Ivan made it pretty clear that Vasily was his heir, and he was his oldest son. But soon, however, palace intrigue caught up with Sophia, and she got into a philosophical battle with Ivan regarding his sympathies with Nilsorsky and the non-possessors. There was even talk of a palace coup against Ivan. In his rage, he named Dmitri, his grandson, as the new heir, and the year was 1498. Now, there was an anti-modernization movement going on from old-time Russians who accused the people behind the changes as being Judaizers. There were no Jews or Jewish influence tied to the group, 
but the term heretic was certainly attached to these so-called Judaizers. The first focal point of attack by the conservatives was one metropolitan Zosimus. Ever the politician, and somewhat of a coward when confronted by a powerful threat, Ivan allowed Zosimus to be ousted in 1496. Next to be targeted was the Tukariot brothers, Ivan's secretary, Ivan Volk Kuritsin, and even Grand Princess Sophia herself. Helen, Dmitri's mother, was now in favor with Ivan, and he made the uh, decision to aggressively, she made the decision to aggressively back the Nilsorsky-led non-possessor faction, which, as we know, was eventually brushed aside by Ivan. Dmitri, you're out. Vasily, you're back in, and the year is 1502. Now 23, Vasily was crowned as heir at a grand ceremony. This enraged the non-possessor boyars who planned a coup. Before it could be carried out, Ivan became aware of it, ordered the conspirators arrested, and those not executed were exiled, with all their land confiscated. This behavior by a tsar directed at the boyars was to become a recurring theme until the early 20th century. The conservatives then set their sights on Ivan's secretary, Ivan Volk Kuritsin. Their accusations were so vociferous, Ivan had no choice. He had his longtime friend burned alive in a cage. Cowardice or political expediency on the part of Ivan? You be the judge. Three years after the coronation of Vasilia's co-ruler and heir, Ivan the Great, gatherer of the lands of Russia, dies in his sleep. It has been said that few mourned his passing because in some way he had alienated everyone around him and had created numerous enemies. Aside from greatly expanding Russia, a few things happened in his reign that greatly influenced the Russian psyche. The first was the many legends that grew during this time. The legend that St. Andrew, a disciple of Jesus, had brought Christianity to Russia, legitimizing Russia as the new center of the Christian world arose. The second legend, even more absurd, was that the Rurik line, which the Grand Prince of Moscow belonged to, was a descendant of Caesar Augustus through his bastard son Prus. Then the most bizarre legend of all was that Grand Prince Vladimir Monomak was the grandson of the Byzantine Emperor Monomachus, and that Vladimir was once named the co-ruler of Byzantium with his grandfather and that they met to consummate the deal. That fact that Monomachus would, the first would uh, never have done that, and the fact that he died 59 years before Vladimir was even made Grand Prince makes the scenario impossible. But nonetheless, these legends were used to bolster the legitimacy of the Tsar's claim to power. Aside from the legends, two concrete things came out of Ivan's reign. One was that the Tsar ruled by divine right, God's will. It came in the form of a response to an offer from the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick III, who asked if Ivan would like him to recognize him as king. Ivan's response was, quote, We, by the grace of God, have been sovereigns over our land from the beginning. We have our ordination from God, and we pray God that God grant us and our children to be sovereign over our land. And we have no heretofore wished ordination from anyone, so now we do not wish it. God was the only one to have say over who was the ruler, no one else. The second thing, his marriage to Sophia and his adoption of the Byzantine ways. 
the ceremonies and rituals put a distance between the Tsar and the people, and even the boyars, which carried on to even the Soviet era. Next week, we follow the reign of Ivan the Great's son, Vasily III, recount how and why Moscow became the center of the Russian world. And now, for this week in Russian history, July 11th through the 17th. 969. Princess Olga, bringer of Christianity to Russia, passes away. In 1054, the Orthodox Catholic Schism starts. In 1203, the Crusaders capture, then sack Constantinople, leading to the distrust of the Catholics by the Orthodox. In 1240, we have Alexander Nevsky defeating the Swedes at the Battle of Nieva. In 1354, or excuse me, 1353, Vladimir the Bold, aide to Dmitry Donskoy at the Battle of Kulakova Field, is born. 1596, Michael Romanov, also known as Michael I, the first in the line of Roman tsar, Romanov Tsars, is born. In 1740, a pogrom in Little Russia, known as, now known as the Ukraine, expelled all Jews. In 1920, we have Russian actor, Russian-born actor, uh, Yul Brenner, was born. In 1942, the Battle of Stalingrad commences. Over two million people die and is what is considered the turning point of the European conflict of World War II. In 1943, the largest tank battle in history, the Battle of Krohorovka between German and Soviet forces, occurs. And here's one that I had mentioned before. In 1943, the massacre of Poles by Ukrainian forces occurs. Up to 300,000 people were murdered. This is how long the feud with Poland has lasted. I wonder, is there still a lingering hostility between the peoples? In 1945, the Potsdam meeting between Churchill, Truman, and Stalin begins. Well, thank you for listening today, and I'd like to make an announcement before signing off. I recently had an iPhone app made for my Russian Rulers podcast, which is available from the iTunes store for only $1.99. If you buy one, it will really help me defray the costs of all the materials I'm amassing to put on this podcast. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to give away two free apps to the two best questions, suggestions, or comments made, on, made either on my podcast site, russianrulers.podhoster.com, markshouse.com, or on my Facebook fan page, Russian Rulers History Podcast. And this is going to be a contest over the next two weeks, and I will announce the winners on my podcast along with your questions, suggestions, or comments. Thank you for listening, and as always, Das Vidanya is Pasiba Bolshoya.